0: Uh, Lord God, you are almighty, and you are wonderful, and thank you for being kind, and I ask that you give us wisdom and sensitivity to what uh, will be taught tonight, and uh, I'm just grateful, and I say thank you, and I'm praying in the name of your son, Jesus. So there's a scene in heaven. Uh, uh, If you missed last week, these are some of the stones that are referenced, this is Carnelian stones. Uh, absolutely beautiful, especially when light strikes them, much like an emerald. And these are stones that are that are featured in this magnificent scene in heaven that we have in uh, Revelation chapter four. Now, by way of review, to kind of get us back uh, back up to speed, so we looked in depth at that first paragraph in Revelation four one of the key ideas that I wanted to remind you of is how we work through the identity of these 24 elders, all right? And here's a reminder of that. So they're astral figures, Egyptian mythology, these things, or they're really just figures that represent a 24 hour day cycle, uh, or it's the church collective, Jews and Gentiles, or this kind of ideal church, the 12... Um, uh, patriarchs in the Old Testament and the 12 apostles in the New, uh, representing this kind of complete, these figureheads of these two eras, or uh, maybe uh, the number of the temple ministry in that cycle that you see written in 1 Chronicles 24, possibly angels, or on, on is arguing that it's just a polemic against Rome. Um and I, and and the reason why on says that is because the emperors uh, would have up to 12 and sometimes 24 lectors, and they were uh even their bodyguards and they carried weapons and if you disturbed the emperor they would beat you up kind of thing so is it is it kind of a polemic against those and certainly it is i i, I think it is but we agreed that it's probably number 4 i think that was the consensus anybody uh, think Otherwise, you might say, hey, no, I really, I think it's something else. Anybody? I realize we're catching up just a bit. So, okay. So if we work with with this idea that it's the 12 patriarchs and the 12 apostles, then it becomes very significant in how they act and how they worship. So let's dig in. I'll read the paragraph. So the first creature that you see in heaven, the first creature was like a lion And the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. All right. Absolutely fascinating. So let's do these creatures. Does anybody want to venture your first, uh, your first pass at this? What does this, what are these creatures? What are they? The four living Creatures. What do you think? Is this symbolism? We've got, got a toolbox there, and there's lots of symbolism and revelation. When is it literal? When is it figurative? When is it metaphor and all those things? What are your thoughts there? What do you think? Any options? Let's present some that are good. Uh, Michelle? It
1: makes me think of um, kind of all of creation.
0: Interesting. Okay, check this out. So this is, what, uh, this is how some scholars handle this, okay? Irenaeus, that's how you pronounce his name, he said the creature of the human face is really the Gospel of Matthew. And the eagle is Mark, and the ox is Luke, and the lion is John. That these four creatures are depictions or metaphors for the gospel, which is really creative, by the way. And you know, Victorinus of Petal—this is the first guy, to, by the way, to write a commentary on Revelation. He changes the order a bit: Matthew's human, Mark's the lion, Luke's the ox, John's the eagle. Okay, Augustine of Hippo. Matthew's the lion, Mark the human face, the ox the eagle. Those kind of things. Have you heard of this before? Have you noticed this? Is this new to you? Yeah. Um, uh, a lot of, a lot of authors uh, of the Gospels use that schema, and the schema that I feel most comfortable with is that Matthew, um, uh, really Matthew, is the human face. I see Mark as the lion. I see Luke as the ox and John as the eagle. And here's why we know that this is a workable idea because when you look at a lot of Greek manuscripts, you know some of the manuscripts have brilliant artwork written on them, you're aware of that. These images are there. And so the early church did kind of embrace these ideas. Uh, Matthew the man, he's the Moses figure and presents the new law and all these discourses and things. And you've got Mark, where Jesus is like a lion. And in fact, there's an interior. There's a code in Greek, a reference, Kai Euthus, which is and immediately. And when you read John's Gospel, he does this, and it says and immediately. And he does that and immediately. Kai is all over Mark, and it's not in the others. And so it's like Jesus is bounding like a lion and full authority, just going here and going there and pouncing and getting these things done. In fact, Mark skips the birth narrative, doesn't even mention it. It's not important. Let's get the lions on the scene. He roars, let's go. And that's Mark's gospel. And then you've got Luke, where Jesus is presented in the most servant-like way, like an ox carrying huge burdens. In fact, it is Luke's gospel that gives us the most tender, supportive, and understanding references to women and children. Okay, that's Luke's gospel. All right, and then, of course, John is theologically so different than the other three, the synoptics, and is so lofty in his ideas that theology is so high. You get all these I am statements, and if you've seen me, you've seen God, and God is up, and I'm on earth, and so you get this really kind of heavenly perspective. And so that is certainly something that I, I hold to. So another option is that these creatures represent God's created natural order, which is what Michelle said. Does anybody want to venture a position what do you think about the natural order yeah yeah or which one you know it's either the the four gospels are represented in the four creatures or no they represent the flora and fauna the created order
1: Predator and a ruminant and
0: <laughs> yes yes yeah a lion and someone that likes to chew its chews its cud absolutely yeah Anybody else? What do you think? I'm trying to equate them to the main facets of Jesus, but I don't really see how those yeah. are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I personally believe it's number four referenced here, this schema, that the four creatures represent the flora and fauna, all the created order, okay? All of creation. And that's extremely significant because when you look at this, uh, God on the throne is prayed for are praised for his creative power and the fact that he can create at will. He speaks it, and it's so. All right, this kind of stuff. So humankind is the head of all creation and noted for its intelligence. The lion is the chief of the wild animals and noted for its ferocity. The ox is the chief of the domesticated animals and noted for its great strength. And the eagle, the chief among the birds, its nobility, its freedom, uh rome by the way really embraced the eagle and the standard icon of the eagle was featured on a lot of their uh their buildings even at the apex of uh, some of their structures Um, and there's folklore and legend that uh during one of the celebrations at one of the great temples at that apex a golden eagle landed there you know symbolizing of course the favor of the gods and so uh uh, I hold that it's it's they represent God's created order, is what they do, okay? Now, and Jan, you'll appreciate this because there's a lot of scripture to back this idea. For example, take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. And look at the first couple of verses here. This is absolutely amazing. Psalm 19 verse 1. What does it say? Someone read that. Just the first couple verses. Heavens declare the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pourth, pours forth speech. And night Tonight reveals knowledge. So we're we're just getting this idea that the created order reveals the glory of God. Does that make sense? Fascinating. Now look at this one. Look at Psalm 104. Turn to Psalm 104 and look at verse 24. Psalm 104: 24. You'll appreciate this. This is this is good. Psalm 104. How many are your works? Verse 24. In wisdom, you've made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. There is the sea, great and broad, in which are swarms without number, animals both small and great. There the ships move along, and Leviathan, which you have formed to sport in it. Some argue that this could be a whale. Some say possibly a hippo or something, but... The created order speaks of the glory of God. Turn over to Psalm 148. Psalm 148, and really the entire psalm speaks of all created things as actually bringing glory and worship to God. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise Him from the heights, praise Him, all His angels, praise Him, sun, moon all stars and light, highest heavens, and the waters that are above the heavens. That's a fascinating idea. Um, he established uh, these waters in the order of the universe and made them forever and ever. He made a decree that will not pass away, they will not transgress a boundary. Praise the Lord, sea monsters and all deep, fire, hail, Snow. It just goes right down the line, and it it's kind of an A to Z presentation of the created order. And then there's one that you're very familiar with. Everyone, turn to Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one. One of Paul's greatest accomplishments through the Holy Spirit. Romans. Paul writes in Romans one, verse eighteen to twenty, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. There's something inside of us that points to God. And then look at this uh, 20, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So creation literally speaks of God. And so um, this is the position that I take. I think it honors the text. It works in all the data in the text that uh, these four creatures are really uh, here to, um, to bring glory to God. So let's develop this. This language of six wings, and they are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, uh, this language of multiple wings and eyes, uh, this is language that refers to the complete submission and the complete discernment of these four creatures for the glory of God. The glory of God is so real that they, they cover their face, they cover their bodies, they cover their feet or their wings. The idea is, is radical and complete Humility. Covering my face, covering my body, covering my feet, okay? Eyes, inside and outside. Hmm, isn't it interesting? Do you think that there's something, have you ever, uh, and I don't mean to get metaphysical, and I'm not gonna get psychological here, but I, I, there is something inside of me, it, the Holy Spirit, and it's real, and I know he's there, and I there are things that I see from the inside. Does it make sense? There's just something in me, and, and there is a relationship and I see things on the inside. But I see things on the outside too. I can look around and see you in the church and my brothers and sisters in Christ. I think this concept of having eyes, multiple eyes, inside and outside is the idea that they get it. They see, they perceive in all aspects who God really is. Radical humility and profound perception and Discernment of who God is, and because of that, they and, and Andrea, this is this is thing A saying exactly as thing B, night and day, 24 hours a day, non stop. They say the threefold holy statement tris hagion is what in Greek it's known as that holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Does that sound like something you're familiar with? Tammy, you're smiling. Sounds like Isaiah 6, doesn't it? It's, a lot of this is drawn from Isaiah. Again, Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel are a lot of the backstory and imagery uh, in the Revelation. So uh, why, why say it three times? Why? What's the purpose of that? Mm-hmm. hints at it, the trinity of the illusion.
1: Uh affirming Uh hmm mm-hmm. So basically, so you're mm-hmm. really saying that you mean
0: it. Yeah. In case you didn't get the first time, let's say it again. In case you missed it the second time, let's say it one more time. Yeah. It creates it creates intensity and emphasis. Like, you can't miss this. Holy, holy, holy. Okay. So, what is the core? What is the key essential idea of holiness? Does anybody? You may have had that as yeah. Younger, teaching, separation. separation, anybody else? On holiness, what that idea is, think of the Hebrew mindset. Think of the Hebrew, mi- we, we go up, well, perfection is what it is. We we Westerners heavily psychologize straight to perfection, okay, and you didn't do that, and I like that, you said, you said separation, okay,
1: clean, set
0: apart. clean. what's that,
1: set apart, set apart. Yeah.
0: Holy other. Really Michelle, yeah. Yeah, you're getting at it, Kirby. Uh, we run to that Western psychologized approach. It's flawlessness, it's perfection, by the way, which are completely true. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But if you put on Hebrew, a Hebrew mindset, it means radically other. It means it is absolutely not me, it's not us. He is profoundly other than us. He's radically different, and they get that. And so they're saying, he is not human. He is profoundly not human, not human, not human. Not us, not us, not us. He is very, very different. He's holy. The sacred, pure, utterly pure, utterly holy, holiness, okay? Radically not us, radically not Satan, absolutely the opposite, okay? Anyone want to comment or uh, questions or uh, something that's important you want to share? Trice Haggion. Okay, ready for your pop quiz? This will count 10 points for your final grade. What does the word polemic mean? Polemic, Jan. You no, don't. I'm not you sure. live it out every day. That's your job. That's her job. So there's a big hint. What does polemic mean? In a way, yeah, but not in not in the sense of deception, but in the sense of proving your opponent wrong. Jan uh,
1: specializes.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it It's your attack strategy. It's what attorney A is gonna do to attorney B. It's what attorney B is gonna do to attorney A, and somebody's gotta win. And the attorney with the best polemics, the best battle plan, the best battle strategy, the best, de- best deployment of, those, of that information, wins, hopefully. That's the idea. It's called a polemic, a war strategy, okay? is the big picture of revelation, the whole letter, is it a polemic against Rome? Absolutely, absolutely is, yeah. And that's why you're caught with this piece of imperial propaganda, you know, an attack against Rome. You are in serious trouble if you get caught with this letter, okay? Well, let's look at this. So this is unusual language, who was and who is and who is to come. Now, uh, here we go again. If we could put on first century eyes and ears, something starts to take shape. Watch this right here. Look at this. So there's this dude named Pasanias. All right. He was a geographer. And his job was to collect data, historical data, about the geographical world, historical events in these places. And this is what he said. He recorded a special ceremony, which is known as the Song of the Doves at Dodona. And guess what the lyric to the song is? Zeus who was, Zeus is, and Zeus shall be, Almighty Zeus. Sounds polemical now, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. This is language that's not unique and not exclusive to Christians. Pagan cults, the the, the Roman pantheon, pan. Theos, all gods, the Roman pantheon, their buffet of gods, the Greek pantheon, all included this kind of language. Okay, so it's not unique. So when we as Christians see this in the Christian New Testament, we go, okay, that's a polemic. We, we've got cultural tension going on here, okay? Um, look at this, the next section. And, um, and when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him, who sits on the throne to him who lives forever and ever. The eternality of God, this triggers something. This is when the 24 elders are cued to worship, all right? And they fall down, bow down to him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. Now, um, actually, the lyric in verse eight or the line in verse eight, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the God almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Andrew, you get your Greek text. You're going to notice this is this actually is the text of the hymn. This is a Caleb piece. All right. This is this is a worship text used in heaven. And it's the same in verse 11. So there's actually lots of hymn texts in the book of Revelation. And can you get your mind around that? <laughs> They're actually singing these lyrics in heaven. Do you think that's important? Do you think that's something the church should sing about? Well, of course. This is really serious uh, a text, and, and the theology is brilliant, all right? So um, let's appreciate something. If the four creatures who epitomize humility, covering the face, the body, the feet. Epitomizing covering, okay? And if they epitomize perception that they can see and discern what is on the outside and what is in their hearts, and they get who God is, and reflexively, once you do that, when like when Isaiah saw God, what did he do? Uh, he immediately did what? Regarding himself, do you recall? I'm the opposite of you. I am unholy. I am unclean. I'm a man from unclean people, and I have unclean lips. I've said unclean things. I mean, it's through Jesus that it's the heart that produces those things. He's saying, "I am not you. I am unholy, and you are holy. You are very other than me." And that's when there's this cleansing process. And the... Coal is placed on the lips to gesture a purging. Okay. Do you realize that if the, if it's if it's the flora and the fauna, it's the created order, the stars, the the, the elk, the daffodil that blooms, the robin that sings, all of it. That this scene is heaven. In heaven is is the Holy Spirit's way of saying. I know you're persecuted. I know it's tough. Open your eyes and look around at the blueness of the sky, the beauty of the clouds, the sun. Look at the created order. Creation gets it, it knows to worship me. Would you please join creation and and praise with me? Can Can you get in on this song? Does this make sense? And so this triggering thing happens. In heaven, it's as though it's kind of an ideal worship service. The rocks are crying out, the trees are clapping their hands, there's genuine worship and people. And I'm not sure who, who mentioned it last Wednesday that we see grace in the text. Because do you think the 12 patriarchs of Israel are they all righteous people? <laughs> no. What about the 12 apostles? Old well, Peter committed the big nasty, right? Denied him three times, and so if these figures, these if they embody redeemed humanity, it's a picture of grace that we who are unqualified are cleansed by Jesus and made permitted to worship, and worship is really, really beautiful when there's so much humility that we are, we are so not about ourselves and we see him and we get him in our hearts and, and around us that we can't help but say he's holy.
1: Is that why
0: they cast their crowns down?
1: Maybe to say, when I "Yes, are not even worthy. Jan, you, you nailed it. That's exactly what it is. It's exactly
0: what's going on. Jan, you love the outdoors. Horses. Do you see, somehow see the glory of God revealed in a horse? Absolutely. That's the point. And so when you see that something is stirred inside of you, and if Jan had eyes to see, and she was broken in the fact that you're not holy, he is holy, and so humility forms in you, you want to bow down. and you want to, It's the reflex to worship when you see it and you get it. Does this make sense? It's grace. It's absolutely incredible. And so <laughs> flora and fauna trigger humans to worship. That is just beautiful. Regarding the casting of crowns, you'll, you'll appreciate this. Um, this is a text uh, uh, from, from ancient history. Crowns are actually the presentation of crowns to someone in higher authority than you was actually a common practice in the Greco-Roman world. When Mark Antony visited Ephesus in 41 BC, the Judean Jews sent an embassy presenting a gift to him of a golden, Jews are giving a golden crown to Mark Antony saying, we acknowledge your authority. We want a good relationship with you, okay? Here's the crown, all right? And they wouldn't take it back. In fact, it's, it's really fascinating that that um, one of the Jewish authors, Josephus, records all the times a crown was presented to a Roman authority. Okay, it's a big deal. There's there's a famous story where uh, someone is allowed to come near the emperor and bow and and give him give him the crown and and back away as a gesture of submission to to this thing. So. Wow, absolutely, absolutely amazing. So, what about this? This is, this, is, this is really intense to me. Intense polemic here. Worthy, worthy. Uh, uh, in Greek, and Andrea, you notice it's axios, axios. Uh, now, can I, can I please challenge your cortex? There are three words I wish you would master, all right? Number one, the word is epistemology. And epistemology is just a big old fancy word that says we should learn how we know things. You should know that you know things, okay? You should not be ignorant, as Paul writes. Be wise, know what the will of the Lord is. By the way, all three of the words I'm giving you are all based on the Greek New Testament, okay? So these aren't secular words, they're, they're, they're Bible words. Epistemology, epistemic, know that you can know something how do you all know right now that you're not dreaming? For some, it might be a nightmare. You know, I hope not, but let's just say we're having a good dream and we're in class right now. How do you know you're not dreaming? What's that? My back still hurts. Back still hurts. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, there's lots of, lots of ways we do that. Some, some people say, well, it's the color test. A lot of us dream in black and white. So we see color, so we're probably not dreaming. Or some say the pinch test. If you actually pinch and feel a little pain, you're know, not dreaming, those kind, those kind of things. Lots of criteria. Some say uh, you, you have the uh, uh, the motion test. Uh, if you recall, in a lot of our dreams, Galen, uh, we can't move, right? We're being chased by the monster and we're mm, 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 mm. And I'm fortunate to study uh, Patrick McAmera on the neuroscience of sleep and dreams, brilliant, Ed. What, what Dr. Magners is, is revealing is that we have a system in the brain that creates temporary paralysis, okay? Your brain goes on lockdown and you can't move. Do you know why? So you're,
1: so you're not, not down the street. street. Down so street. you're not down the street, yeah. literally playing
0: out your yeah. dream. Yeah. In fact, people who have certain sleep disorders don't have that temporary paralysis, that breaking system in the brain. And so they're they're down the street or they're grabbing a knife or they're doing something crazy and throwing the dog across the yard or something awful, you know. So how do you know that you know stuff? How do you go from being ignorant to being educated? That's called epistemology. You need to know that. Second word is ontology, ontos. And it means being. It's important that you know what a thing is. For example, can you tell the difference between a cat and a dog? You go, yep, great, you're doing ontology. That's right out of the New Testament, okay? That's not crazy, ontos. Can you tell what a thing is, and can you organize it and categorize it in a fair and reasonable way? If it has four paws, wagging tongue, wagging tail, and barks, and we parade that critter in front of 500 people, chances are all 500 will say the same thing. That's a dog. Good welcome to what is known as common sense. Shared meaning through the five senses. That's ontology. Last one, axiology, axios, worthy. Which means do you have the ability to put a proper value on a thing? Do you understand a concept of worth? Okay, let me give you an illustration. Um, I have a small piece of tin attached to my key ring. If I took that to the scrapyard and they threw it on the big scales, what would they give me?
1: 0.00001 cent.
0: And they would say, you know, here's a buck to get out of here. You know, it's, I mean, it's literally worthless at a scrapyard. But to me, axiologically, it's priceless. Because this was around my father's neck when he was in the Korean War. It's priceless. I am making a value judgment or assessing the worth of this little piece of tin because it means something very special because I've done good ontology and I know what a thing is and I can enter in the idea that he went through profound sacrifice. And I can know that I really know that. And I've locked it down. And so I therefore have the ability to make a judgment call. And say, this is really good, or that is really bad. Makes sense? By the way, what do you know about the disorder known as hoarding? You
1: mm-hmm.
0: know a little bit about it? Okay. Does someone have a problem with worth concepts on hoarding? Why? They think everything has worth. They think everything has worth, and they don't know when to say, no, that really does, that newspaper doesn't have worth, it's okay to throw it away. Or, or, you know, I really don't need, uh, whatever, you know, seven hammers, I need one hammer, okay? This is the concept that really is, is critical to Greek culture. They always did this. They studied and measured worth and value. And they had the idea that a person of higher honor was more worthy, had more axios than a person of low status who had very little honor. And in fact, the word can be used so strongly, it means this, this, that there are some things that are so miserable, it's not worth it to compare them, do axiology against anything. It's not even worth it. Don't even bother. It's worthless. Or the other extreme, there's some things that are so worthy that nothing can be compared to it. Right? That's what they're grabbing at axiology. Worthy are you, meaning nothing can be compared to you. Not even a Caesar. It's a polemic. Now look at this. Our Lord and our God. Now this is pretty serious. Look at this here. Um, Dr. On said this. This is important that you get. I want you to lock it down. Now this is in the century before uh, uh, 81. Okay. Rome never had a ceremony that actually deified or made into God's status a living emperor. You had to be dead first, okay? They gave that posthumously. And they started doing that in the first century BC. Make sense? All right? There was no system for a living emperor to do that until... (laughs) until Gaius Caligula was the first living emperor to claim divinity, calling himself best and greatest, or Optimus Maximus, which was a title that had been exclusively assigned to Jupiter, which is the Roman title for their super god in comparison to Greek's who named their super-god Zeus, all right, okay. Now on goes on uh, to say that later, by the way, Suetonius gives us so much of this data. By the way, he even wanted to be greeted that way. But here's where it gets serious. Nero accepted that, but it is Domitian who specifically adopted the twin titles of Lord and God And not only did he send out letters under those names, but demanded that he be addressed by them. So you remember your toolbox on the right? Most likely, when was this written? If you choose the early date, you go with Nero. If you choose the late date, which is by far the bulk of scholars, you go with 95 AD. Who's the emperor? It's Domitian. And here's what's powerful. This is the exact verbiage that Domitian used to describe himself Lord and God. Makes sense? This is a polemic. Kirby, this is propaganda against the imperial, imperial machine. And you get caught with this, and there's going to be a problem. Makes sense? Okay. So, back at it. Worthy are you our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. That is raw, pure power and authority. And when you compare this person, this God, against Domitian, what is Domitian like? He's so miserable. He's such a nothing. It's really not don't even bother making the comparison. He's so nothing in compared. No. All right, let's let's pull this into our world today. Let's let's make sense out of this. Would this be comforting to a persecuted church? Why? Why do you think so, Erin?
1: It gives you a sense of belonging. It gives you hope that things are going to be okay. Yeah. yeah. Take a deep breath.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, chill out. <laughs> you know, hang in there. Yeah, yeah. It, it's all going to work.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's so good, Aaron.
1: What did you? What were you gonna say?
0: Mm -hmm. even though it was terrible yeah 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 have eyes to see Mm -hmm. lots of eyes Mm -hmm. see it get the big picture Mm -hmm. inside your heart and outside the world around you Uh, look up look up yeah that's good someone else how would this encourage you it's like every knee shall bow
1: and every tongue shall Mm. Mm dress I mean
0: that's
1: hope
0: yeah it really is yeah
1: because that's all of creation and then if the elders are the
0: It's so good. We're going to worship. Yeah, so so if we've done some due diligence and how to interpret the text, we conclude that the four living creatures represent all the created order, okay? And the, and the 24 elders represent all of redeemed humanity. It's people who don't deserve to be there, but have experienced grace and are allowed to be there. And once they get it and see it, just as creation worships perfectly and worships reflexively so we too should be triggered by just by a sunrise to join in the lyric of holy, holy, holy and join in the lyric that you are worthy and you created all these things that's good, someone else how do we pull this into our world today mm-hmm. uh,
1: Psalms 133. being able to see God's glory and everything. Hmm. And mm-hmm. It's like having comfort in that. Like there's literally everything he is everywhere, mm-hmm. and everything speaks to that. And that and no so it's
0: yeah, and if you have eyes to see, you see him in the highest heavens. You see him in the lowest hell. He's not limited by time and space. Yeah, he has that kind of. Uh, here's a good political word: sovereignty. Someone else. Why does this matter? How do we pull it forward into our world today? Here's something I see. Have you ever um, had the sense, let's use a metaphor. Have you ever had the sense that uh, a crumb fell off heaven's table and, and you get a little piece of heaven. Do you ever have that sense? You know what I mean? Uh, I do, I do. All right, so here's, uh, I love it. one scholar said. He said that, that the only other time this happens is when Christians on earth <laughs> really worship and they believe, Terry, what you said, it's going to be okay. We can relax. We can trust the Father that he won't neglect his children. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to protect his kids from suffering. It does mean all wrongs will be made right. And, and the bliss, what we're walking into at the marriage supper of the Lamb, is of such magnitude, to borrow Paul, Romans 8.18, that the present suffering cannot compare against what's going to be revealed to us. And so we can have hope. Gives us hope that that what's happening on earth is not all there is. There's something beyond us. There's more. And we can have hope. It is beautiful. Okay. Anybody else want to share? Eden restored. Oh, wow. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be so good. Okay. Well, one thing we can do while on earth <laughs> is we can worship by taking the Lord's Supper, which is the amazing reminder that the whole reason why we would get to be in heaven and stand and worship in the crowns is because of grace. And that's what this is about. So would you read with me in unison? For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. But the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. For in the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this often as you drink it in remembrance of me. There's often as you eat Let me pray for you, Father. Prepare hearts to worship in a simple and quiet way. In Jesus' name, amen.